Good morning. Great to see you. Uh, I have looked forward to this for a long time, and I uh, have some very fond memories of being with you the first time here uh, a few years ago on a teen weekend, so it's very good to be back. And I bring greetings. I'm going to sound like the Apostle Paul here. I bring greetings from Russ Bowman. Y'all know that name? Chris Emerson. Uh, I was actually with those two uh, rascals just this past weekend in Dallas because of another name that's probably familiar to you, Mark Roberts. Uh, and uh, we just had a little teen gathering there, their teen lectureship, and so that was a great, great weekend. Actually, it's still going on. We all bugged out before Mark preached, I know, you'll understand. But, uh, but it's just good to be with you, and I'll actually share a few more thank yous a little bit later because I know what it's like to be on a schedule. Our family in Christ is like yours. We uh, pack a lot in on Sunday morning, and so if you don't mind, I want to jump straight into the lesson. There is a passage that is actually the final words of the Apostle Peter, and it's in the second letter from Peter. And the Apostle Peter's very last words to all of us are these. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. But grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and Forever. I mean, that sentiment coming from Peter is probably something that if you know anything about the life of the Apostle Peter, he was a guy who experienced some very high highs and some very low lows. And he knows what it's like to fall. And isn't it interesting when you hear his admonition, his final words to all of us? He says, Don't fall. Don't fall. It's almost as if he's saying, learn from me. Don't fall. And here's the secret to not falling. Grow. Always be growing. And he says, grow in your knowledge. And I get that. We, we want to grow in our biblical knowledge and our understanding of God. We want to grow in our faith. But, but he doesn't just say grow in knowledge. He says grow in grace. Now to me, that's kind of interesting. Uh, does grace actually fluctuate like knowledge? Can, 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 can you grow in grace and therefore the more you understand about grace, the more sure your footing will be in Jesus? Well, the answer to that is yes. Yes. And that's his point. Don't just grow in your cerebral mind and knowledge. Learn how to grow in grace. And I want us to do that this morning. If you have the Heavenly Library with you, I would like for you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I, and, I, and I want us to understand the context here before we get into this passage. This is one of those great stories in the Bible. And let me just say, it's a true story. It's a true story. Over 3,000 years ago, there was a young king, and this young king's name was David. And, and David at this time, in his kingship, well, he, his popularity level is through the roof because the kingdom is 
flourishing. All of his enemies at this time have been defeated. Most importantly, a divided kingdom has been united and brought together. And even more importantly than that, the kingdom has been restored, if you will, spiritually. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was in the hand of their enemies for many, many years. And David has gone and retrieved the Ark and he's brought it back to the tabernacle. He's brought it back to God's people. And he's known as a great warrior. If you look in the preceding chapter in verse 13, he's already made a name for himself. We're, we're talking about a very young king here, probably in his early 30s. Uh, and he's, he's at an all-time high. Everybody loves him. His enemies have been defeated. And you would think, you would think at the height of all this popularity with everybody loving him, with everybody screaming and shouting his name, with the economy doing well and everything, everybody together that he would be happy but he's not and this brings us to our text second Samuel chapter 9 and David said is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him are you Ziba and he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. Now let's just stop right here for a moment. I want you to notice that David remembers that he has made a promise. And if you think back, if you think back to that close bond that he shared with Jonathan, if you know that story, you remember, remember after David defeated Goliath and Jonathan saw everything going on and Jonathan goes, I got to get to know that guy. That is my kind of guy. And, and they developed a, a brotherhood. In fact, they developed a kinship that was so strong. Scripture says they were knit to the soul. And what we see in their relationship is, is that they had a bond like no other as brothers, and Jonathan and David were knit together to such an extent that Jonathan, even though he was the rightful heir to the throne, he understood God had given that throne away to David. And while Jonathan's going to be faithful to his father, he's also going to be faithful to the will of God. And he says, David, remember my family. Remember my family. It's as if Jonathan kind of knew this isn't going to end well for me. You remember my family. And so what is David doing? He's remembering. Even though everything in his life is really uh, just on the top shelf, he, he's not happy because he made a promise to a very dear friend. A covenant promise. In fact, what's interesting, when you look at that covenant promise, you'll understand that this is a means of more than just kindness, as it says in the text. Notice David says to Ziba, is there anyone to whom I may show the kindness of God? Well, that word kindness actually refers to covenant faithfulness. Is there anyone out there with whom I can share the mercies of God? And, and, and I want you to notice, I want you to notice real quickly what Ziba said. This is so important to the lesson. He said, yeah, there is this guy. 
He's actually a son of Jonathan, but king, king. Not sure who you're looking for or what you're going at here, but he's crippled. He's crippled in both of his feet. If you're looking for a commander, if you're looking for some sort of a leader, if you're looking for somebody to come in and really sit maybe on your cabinet and be a part of your administration, he's probably not your guy. You ever thought like that? You ever fallen into the trap of Measuring somebody by their appearance or by their circumstances or even by what's going on in their life. Let me just make a quick application before we move on just to emphasize this point. I want you to imagine Jacob's been preaching on evangelism. And man, he's got a whole series going. And, 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 and every Sunday you, you come out of here just on fire, ready to be a light to the world. And your radar is up and you're looking for somebody to evangelize to. I'm going to be a light in the world. I'm going to be somebody to the Lord. Man, I am looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And you wake up the next day all fired up, ready to go. And, 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 and you go out because you got to take out the trash on Monday. And as you're walking, take out the trash. You see your neighbor and go, oh, yes, that's my guy. Oh, yeah, he's a real nice guy. And you're, you're just getting ready to go over and talk to him because he's bringing out his trash also. And, and right before you really get over there, you go, whoa, wait, yeah, you know, his trash is filled with a lot of beer bottles. He's probably not going to be interested. He kind of hits the sauce every now and then. In fact, he, he really struggles with it. Ah, it's not my guy. Let me go to work. Let me go to work. And so you get to work and, and you're sitting there at work and, and, and your radar's up and you're looking around in the office. Oh, yes, her, her. Oh, yeah. She's actually asked me to pray for her before. And you start to make your way over there and you go, yeah, but she's, she's on like her second marriage and kids and this, that, and the other. And man, how's that going to work out? And we're going to talk about, yeah, that's not going to work. And, and then all day, you, you can't find anybody. You can't find anybody. They're all crippled. They're all crippled. Well, I want you to notice that David wasn't asking for a report on the physical, spiritual, or mental condition of any relative of Jonathan. He just wanted to know, was there anybody left? Ziba? Where is he? In fact, here's what he says in the very next verse. And the king said to him, Where is he? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. And he fell down on his face and he paid homage. And David said to him, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you're going to eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth continued to pay homage and said, What is your servant 
that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Well, you, you, you talk about your low self-esteem. Here is a man who is consumed by misery. And please see this. No family. They're all dead. No friends, no home, no hope. Here, here's what's kind of interesting about Mephibosheth, and this is what's interesting about many of our biblical characters. He is not only just a man of humility, he's a man who's living up to his name. His name means big shame. Who names their kid that? Who names their kid? Oh, kid's born from the moon. Oh, my. Oh, would you look at that. Oh. Who does that? Anybody here ever gone and looked up your name and what it means? Actually, when I was doing this sermon, I went and looked up my name, and I was like, this is going to be so cool. Philip, you know, Philip the Great. It's got to be Greek, you know, Alexander's father. Man, I was so excited. I'm turning, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I found it. And I was like, yeah, and it means lover of horses. Does that not sound a little bit pansy? Lover of, I, I, granted, I grew up in Texas, but come on. Lover of horses. Don Turex interprets that for me, My Little Pony. That's unfair. <laughs> May I suggest to you something, just something to think about? I think there's many characters in Scripture that maybe when they're shared with us in the text, maybe that wasn't exactly their given name from their mama. It's just the name that represents their life. Now, that's pure first fill, one, one. But here's a man who was filled with shame. In, in, in fact, everything in the passage has reference and meaning with regards to name, Lodabar. Lodabar, if you were going to your biblical map in the back of your Bible, and you would go up to the northeast and go out into the desert from the Sea of Galilee, you go across there, the sea and go off into the rocks, you would find a place called Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. Let's show you a little biblical economics for you. If you have no pasture, you have no what? No herds and no flocks. If you have no herds and no flocks, you have no what? You have no income. If you have no income, you got nothing. In fact, Amos, the prophet, will make fun of people who think they have something in Lodabar. He goes, it's just a place of rocks. It's actually, it's actually a place that is a home for the forgotten, a wasteland for the weary. It's a good place to go and hide and hope nobody finds you. And Mephibosheth falls before David, and I don't know if this really needs much interpretation. He says, I'm a dead dog. I'm a dead dog, a disgusting sight, and I'm worthless. I can only imagine what's going on in this guy's mind when a messenger from the king comes and says, hey, King David has found you and he wants you to come back. Can, can you imagine? What, what generally happened to descendants of thrones when there was a regime change? 
And I'm going to assume that David sent some sort of transportation. He didn't just send a messenger and say, all right, we want you to walk back to Jerusalem. And all the way that he's sitting in that cart, bouncing all the way back, going, is he bringing me back to kill me? Could my life be any worse? You know what's interesting? If you look at the history of Mephibosheth, he wasn't born lame. When the news came back to the castle that his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, had died in battle, there was a panic at the the castle, and people scattered. And the text tells us that an attendant or nurse holding him dropped him. Was he dropped and trampled on by everybody running out? Was he actually dropped maybe from a high precipice? We don't know, but he was dropped. And he's left lame in both of his feet. In one day, his world was shattered. In one day, he lost his family, his home, and his health. And now David says, come here. Come here. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant. And he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord my king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I know that we haven't once used the word grace in this text. But can you not hear the grace? The exile is now a son. The recluse is now redeemed. The forgotten is now remembered. You've got to slow down and see this. One of the great mistakes we sometimes do when we're reading through Scripture or studying Scripture, we don't stop and visualize it. I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine. That David as the king has invited all the dignitaries in the land to come to the palace for a huge state dinner, you know. And, 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 and they've all received these fancy invitations. And everybody comes out dressed in their Gucci of Jerusalem. And they ride up in their Mercedes chariot with 42 horses pulling it along. And they step out at the palace. And they walk in and the tapestries are hung and it's beautiful. And I mean, the band is just getting it. And and, and it's just a beautiful, the the feast is amazing. And the aroma is just filling your nostrils. And everybody that is somebody that is there. And you can see the guests making their way around the tables. They find their little name placket and they sit down. and, and, And they're looking around. And then all of a sudden the king walks in and everybody stands up at attention. The band stops and everybody stands there silent. 
And David walks out and welcomes all of his guests. His table is empty because it's reserved for the greatest dignitaries, his children. And in comes Absalom and Amnon. And now I'm like the oldest child, like he runs a place. He comes in and takes his place at the other head of the table. Absalom's probably been doing like 50 push-ups, so he's got the vein coming out in his biceps, and his hair's flowing long, and he swaggers in and takes his place. Tamar, oh my word. She probably worked on her makeup and her hair all day. Her gown was in, featured in People of Jerusalem just that morning. And she comes in and takes her, and you guys hear the audience gasp. Solomon comes in, spectacles, reading a book, bumps into everything because he's not paying attention. And then there's one empty place. And you know the king's family, you've counted them all, they're all there, all there. But the king is doing this number. He's anxious. And in the silence, you hear a... And this lame, pathetic, feeble man drags his worthless legs up to that same table and the king smiles puts his arm around that boy and says ladies and gentlemen my son Mephibosheth now don't go looking that up I made it up okay don't get on to me I know Solomon hasn't been born yet I know But I don't think that's too far-fetched from the truth with the way David felt and what's being shared in this story. Because you not only see a man filled with humility, a man who is worthless, a man who has no value, you see a king, and you see a merciful king, and you see a king who accepts the humble regardless of their shame. I want you to see in this story right here that this story represents the Bible story. And what you see in the heart of David is truly a man after God's own heart. As Scripture tells us, our Lord gives more grace in James 4, 6. Therefore God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 2, 8, speaking of our salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith, then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Proverbs 3, 34, surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 22, 11, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips... The king will be his friend. And not only does he accept the humble regardless of their shame, he restores to them honor and privilege. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and now they have one boss. It's Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth goes from no pasture to some of the best pasture there is. He goes from nothing, a land of rocks, the prosperity that is overflowing. Our God is a God of re restoration.
Well, what does Scripture tell us in Psalms 84, 11? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalms 103, 2 and 4, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He redeems your life from destruction, and He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. And what does the king do? <laughs> As if that wasn't enough. He treats the lame as family. Family. Paul reminds us of this when he talks about our relationship through Jesus Christ. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, by which you received the spirit of adoption. We cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. You know what's interesting? We live in a land, and, and we know what it's like to see so many children without parents. There, there was actually a book written many years ago. It was called Project Roots, and it was about all the children who were born during World War II who were born out of wedlock, and many were born to GIs who had gone overseas. And, and this whole book was centered around these, these children who are now, they're the World War II generation. They lived their whole life never knowing really who their parents were, and so they're hoping somebody can identify them and see them. I, I, I do a lot of work with sacred selections and, and help children find homes. It's, 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 it's such a heartwarming thing to see the whole powerful meaning and reality of adoption. And what you see through David and Mephibosheth is the heart of our God toward all of us. That we have a father like no other. Mephibosheth, you're not a dead dog. No, here you're a son. You're a son. Let me give you four quick take-homes real quick, all right? Number one, I, I want us to grow in grace. This is what Peter's trying to get across to us, that you grow in grace and that this just secures your foundation and you feel more grounded in your Lord. You know what grace does? Grace reminds us we're all lame. We're all lame. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, in verses 1 through 3, for all of us, all of us are lame. All of us are crippled. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. All of us, all of us. I've, I've often wondered, well, how did Amnon, Absalom, all the others react to, to Mephibosheth coming in the house? Did he have to share a bunk bed with one of those guys? I mean, how did this work? Well, David treated him as a son. So they better treat him as a brother. And we treat one another as brothers and sisters when we remember this very important truth. We're all lame. We all need grace. 
Secondly, grace. Grace can be multiplied. This is one of the great truths of Scripture. Grace can be multiplied. Uh, anybody here have an annoying brother or sister that's younger than you? You got one of those? Oh, my word, yes. My brother, my brother was two years younger than me. But by the time I was four and he was two, I was getting hand-me-ups because he was so big. <clears throat> Got worse. Not only was he big, he was so generous. When we were, I was about 15 years old and he was 13, we got around the Christmas tree and this, that, and the other and handing out gifts. And, you know, I gave Dad, you know, you give Dad a tie. You know, you get a cheap tie. You know what my brother gave him? You know what my brother gave him? got this huge box and my dad reached into it and I thought it was some little gag gift but my dad opened the present and he went oh, son and he pulled out a whole set of golf clubs I grabbed Todd I yanked him in the dining room and I said what are you doing where are the kids what are you going to do next year you thought about that a few years ago Todd called and said hey we're me and Lori were going to get married. I was, oh, that's great. You're here to Lori get married. Well, where are you getting married? We're getting married in Hawaii. I went, have fun. He goes, no, I want you to do the wedding. And I'm like, yeah, that's going to be $42,000. Should I take my wife? I don't know about that. The kids, who goes? And then he goes, we're flying you all out there. And I went, Todd. You get it? You know how it works. The treasures that we have, God says we can store them up in heaven. They multiply when we share them. Folks, hear this. Grace is not diminished when you share it. It multiplies. Don't limit that gracious favor of God. Don't limit those gifts that God has showered upon you. Share them with others. And may I share with you, grace is more than just salvation. Yes, grace is part of the salvation plan, and I'm going to make that point here in a moment. But we have so much grace in our lives. In a few moments, all these kids are going to run off to Bible class. And you know what the best part about kids going to Bible class is? Is when they come out and they're showing you everything that they have and they're showing off what they made and they come and they give you a big hug and you just soak it all in. It's grace. You ever just stopped and realized all the things that you have in your life that you do not deserve or earn? It's just God's grace being poured on you. <laughs> Every breath you take is grace. Have you ever thought of that? Every time your heart beats is grace. I mean, for the past 30 minutes, not one of you thought about breathing, have you? Now, some of you, maybe you're on oxygen, but most of you right here is going, I didn't even think about it. Great, now it's on my mind. <gasps> you know? <laughs> we are so feeble. Every breath shows our dependence on God. And then the last thing, and this is so important. Grace is being loved and invited to the table. You know what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross? Behold, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Folks, we come to the table of the Lord. Worthless? Yeah. 
disgusting? Yeah. But forgiven. And when we sit at the table of the Lord, we're there with our Father. And He sees us as we truly are to Him, His children. And may I give you one simple thought as we wrap this up. If somebody ever asks you, what are the steps of salvation? May I encourage you to start with grace. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the word of God. Then I hear, believe, repent, confess and baptized and live as a child of God. It all begins with grace. Peter said, grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we be people of God who never forget the value and the meaning of grace. And may we always know that we're loved. Thank you so very much for your kind attention.